M&K Talk YA now presents Five Dark Fates, Part 2, from the Three Dark Crowns series by Kendar Blake. MK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And today we are recording the finale of the Three Dark Crowns Quadrology by Kendar Blake. We finished the last book in the series, which was called Five Dark Fates. And it's over! Woo! We made it! We were just talking about how the way we do these books, we've been in this world for nine weeks now, which is just like a long time. That's like a program, that's like a graduate school semester, I feel like. Yeah, we're ready for our final. <laughs> oh god, I do not want to be quizzed on this book. I would not do well. Pronounce all the names. Ah! <laughs> who's alive and who's dead? Uh. Oh man, I actually, so I think I was kind of complaining about the pacing the lot, like book three and the first part of book four. I don't know, the second part of the second book and the second part of the fourth book I loved as far as pacing went and then some of the beginning and some of the middle I thought got really slow again but this last half I actually felt like a lot happened and I like enjoyed how it all tied together better. I did too. I I enjoyed this second half of this journey. Um, I thought some of the fighting scenes were really exciting. Mm-hmm. I, I have mixed feelings about how it ended up. We can get we can get to that. But um, I agree with you. I think the pacing was much better. I was, like, much more excited reading this. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of good scenes. There are still... I still have questions about some of the overall how things work or the magic or the, like... Um, the mist. Just kind of, like, big yeah. picture stuff what happened. Um, but I also... I thought there were a lot of cool details that really came together nicely and, like, the back and forth between all the different I felt like everyone kind of got their moment yeah all the side characters that we really cared about and important thing you totally won the bet oh my goodness I almost <laughs> texted you because it was like it was pretty quick that Mirabella and Mirabella died kind of fast I was like wait yeah. is she really dead wait she's dead and I was like should I text Marissa but I was looking and I was a little bit further than you on Goodreads and I so I just waited but um yeah it's funny you did send me an email finally after I finished it, and you were like, yes, finally one of the queens died. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually, but the funny thing is, so I thought that, well, I added jewels to my guests just so that in case none of the queens died, I would have someone else possibly. And I kept thinking Arsinoe was going to be the one who died, and they were the two of the four who survived. But yep. I'm happy Two of, not happy, I guess, but two of them died, so my prediction from the first half of the first book finally came true. <laughs> Congrats. But it was kind of... I. How do you feel about it? What do you think about, about the deaths? The, about the deaths? Mm-hmm. Specifically... <gasps> Toby has some things to say. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Mirabella um, first. Okay, so Mirabella, Mirabella's death, I guess I liked it. I don't know. I just... I didn't like the idea that having the queens, the dead queens, inhabit Mirabella would be so awful that 
it was preferable to have her throat cut and thrown off a cliff. Like, I felt like Mirabella was such a strong character. Like, I, I was glad that she kind of, like, recognized that she was strong and, and if the queens were in her, it could hurt the kingdom. So she, like, sacrificed herself for the kingdom. I liked that. Mm-hmm. But I also was just like, girl, you're so strong. Like, maybe you could have fought them. Like, you didn't even try. You just were like, nope, not having it. Kill me. I don't want to be possessed. And it just was disappointing that she died that way. It also, again, just happened, like, so fast. Like I said, even when I was reading it, I was kind of like, <laughs> wait, did she kill her? Or, like, what? Like, I almost, like, didn't understand what happened because it, I don't, it just, like, like, everything was going along. We were getting some, things were starting to happen and then things were really happening. I don't know. But, but it um, did, um, it reminds me of the scene with Queen Ilian and Daphne when Queen Ilian threw herself off the cliff or was she pushed off the cliff? Like, there was that moment that we learned about and it's not really sure if one murdered the other or what was going on there. So I kind of did like that we had an echo of that moment in the past that happened in the present. Like, it was like a nod to that situation. Yes, although the question still remains. She died (laughs) and the mist stayed, but then the mist ultimately left, but the mist was still bad, but then she was also in... Like, yeah, the mist part didn't really make sense to me through a lot of this second half. Agreed, because everyone said, like, oh, to unmake the mist, Mirabella has to die. That's the only one to unmake it. And then she died, and that theory was not true. And no one even said anything. Yeah. I I would have even appreciated if they were like, well, I thought that would work, but it did Like, if there was some, even if it was a bad theory or a bad, but, like, acknowledging that it happened. But I did like, and this is what I predicted from the beginning, um, the fact that Mirabella's death kind of also sparked this like the sisters forced to come together because one of them loved the you know I had the people the players wrong and stuff a little bit but Catherine killed one of the sisters who were friends with the other sister and it encouraged this moment but the thing that I was a little bit disappointed by still so I the other thing I kept waiting for and we saw a little bit of was Catherine to kind of be redeemed a little bit Mm -hmm. and then to remember her as their sister and Mirabella had gotten there or was largely there but they didn't really even have a good I wish there had been like one more good scene between the two of them me too or the three of them I like we never really got to see the three of them all together which I was kind of sad about yeah I thought even if Mirabella came back in the mist there'd be something where they had like this moment all three but then also I mean we kind of knew at the final scene where Catherine gets killed we kind of saw Catherine trying to like sacrifice herself and get rid of the queens and like telling Arsenoi that she had to do what she had to do and all this stuff but it also again felt kind of rushed and sad that that was their only interaction the two mm-hmm. of them the whole time and they didn't really get they didn't get a moment like a good sense of peace necessary I mean they sort of did but yeah exactly. and like I wanted them to like talk I don't know I wanted Catherine to get that like at the end of the day my sisters loved me and I did what I needed to to protect them on the island right and like Mirabella didn't even get to say goodbye to anyone the sister yep. relationship really, like, didn't even matter at the end, which was kind of disappointing. Yeah, I agree. But there was also kind of a cool poetic justice-ness to it that at the end of the day, two of the queens still died. And um, and none of their deaths, their deaths felt a little bit rushed, or, like, I wish there had been a little bit more around mm-hmm. them, maybe, but they didn't feel completely crazy to me. Like, it's still, I wish there had been a little bit more to it, but, it did, like, it sort of made sense. Yeah, it didn't feel like they just randomly died, like, in battles, like, someone got shot with an arrow or something. Like, right. it, 
I like that they died at each other's hands and they were kind of trying to protect each other in their own weird way and yeah. And then, okay, so how do you feel about the whole mist situation being resolved? I'm still just so confused, <laughs> again, about what happened between Mirabella's death and the mist thing being resolved. Because I thought, because then Arsenoia seemed to think that Mirabella was part of the mist, which mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I can maybe see that. But why would Mirabella be, like, tearing soldiers in half? Exactly. But then the mist was still being extremely vicious I just like didn't understand if the mist was just going after Catherine that would be one like if it was just going after the dead queens but that wasn't what was happening it was like and it even seemed like on the battle it wasn't just Mira or it wasn't just Arsenoi who wasn't attacked by the mist so I couldn't tell like in even in earlier scenes remember like the mist would go places and like some people would come out fine and some people would disappear and some people would be torn in too and it's like how did it how could it decide or like what was its motivation or yeah because like Arsenault and Peter go through it at the end to try and find Catherine and and they see people getting torn up and I was like yep well what is protecting them like there's no rhyme or reason to it I didn't like that that didn't make sense yeah I didn't fully get that but what cool is the wrong word but there at least was something at the end when the mist kind of like ate up the dead queen spirit stuff that sort of made me feel a little bit better if it was but again I just had a question with if it was Mirabella before or I mean if it was um what was the other one Ilion Mm -hmm. before and that was it why was like I didn't get why it was doing all this other stuff I sort of I was like okay it would defeat the bad queens that seems like a good thing for the good queen to do to protect the island but I didn't get what else the mist was doing and why and like the dead queens were in row whatever and then they got cut out of her which was a I actually really liked that scene when Jules cuts the queens out of row but then Mm -hmm. the dead queens are like floating around trying to find another body why didn't the mist just eat them then yeah, like that I agree. didn't make sense. They, there was a whole patch of time where they were just floating around trying to like get into another body, and I don't understand like. And they literally had to go through the mist yes! to get there. That yeah. that didn't make any sense to me. And then like, I would say the mist is my biggest question mark overall. And then how did so? And then Ro came back, I guess, because she still had a few more dead queens inside her, so she came back like as a zombie to kill arsenal and i just was confused about that too because i was like why is she all of a sudden targeting arsenal like what were the dead queens trying to do well the queens can only the dead queens can only live in a live queen and so arsenal was considered weakened at that point so i think i mean they could they could temporarily live in row but they couldn't stay in row forever they needed to be in a queen I think. Okay. But I agree. It was, that's, I mean, that's me, like, trying to... Trying to piece it together, yeah. Yeah. And then the whole thing with, like, Arsenault trying to use low magic to get rid of the mist, it, -hmm. like, worked for a minute, and then it stopped. I agree. Yeah, there, there wasn't enough conclusion with... I thought that was the whole point, was that her low magic was gonna... But then even that, it was sort of like, low magic is this thing you're not supposed to do. I get that she's a queen, so she has a stronger tie Mm -hmm. to it, but... Like, I was expecting more of the origin story to matter. And all we really found out, we did find out they found the first church or whatever. Shrine, or whatever, yeah. And the goddess slash first queen was a legion queen, which I guess was kind of cool to know. But part of me was like, this doesn't make me feel better. The fact that Jules is starting a new line or whatever, couldn't we just end up right back here again? I kind of wanted there to be more of a, like what happened this time and what are we going to do different next time? Not just like this line has gotten corrupted or whatever. I don't know. I, I felt like there's still something kind of missing for me in the 
the difference between like the origin story and how same with the mist same with the why are there triplets same I, just like something there's like a missing piece to me in terms of yes we're in a new world now but what what's changing why is it still the goddess manipulating everything did the goddess want jewels to be in charge and I don't know I just felt like there was still something missing to me I didn't really understand the end like what was happening at all because Arsenal wasn't really queen Jules wasn't really queen like it didn't seem like anyone was stepping up I had no idea who was in power I thought Jules was queen is she not queen maybe I just assumed that I mean, they call her, like, the Legion Queen, but I was like, why isn't Arsenal... I guess Arsenal just isn't queen because they wanted the line to break. Like, they didn't want one of the triplets to be queen. I mean, I agree. That was kind of... It wasn't very clear. And they had also... They had mentioned before the, like, Black Council thing, remember, in the woods, and they were like, this is going to be my Black Council. And they were like, no, we're going to do something completely different, and we should figure... But they, like, didn't address it again. Yeah. And then the whole thing with, like, Jules at the end, all of, like, I liked that she cut free her Legion curse to go fight Roe, like, that was a cool scene, but then all of a sudden she, like, after the mist died or whatever and ate the dead queens, she wasn't cursed anymore, and she just got to keep her Legion gift, and, like, everything was fine, and that was confusing. Well, and that's where, again, I felt like there was some origin piece that we yeah. were missing or, like, something that tied this back. Like, I sort of felt like there was a hint of it in terms of saying, like, the first queen was a legion queen. And it was like, oh, cool. And we saw that Jules became the queen. But how did that happen or why did that happen? That was the missing piece. Yeah, and why isn't she cursed anymore? Yeah, I don't know. That didn't make sense to me. And even the fact that we've been talking and talking and talking about how low magic always has a cost, right? Yeah. And... We did a lot of powerful low magic at the end, both to tie jewels and to defeat the queens and whatnot. And I was expecting that to come back. Like, maybe jewels would break the curse and be fine, but Amelia would die or something else would happen. Well, I think Mira dying was maybe a cost. Maybe. I guess I'm just confused. <laughs> I am too. Because it's sort of, that felt so separate from the low magic, but I guess they cared about Mira, so maybe it counted. No, I'm with you. I, I think... It was hard to see what the actual cost was. Mm -hmm. I mean, aside from just people dying in a battle. It sort of felt like part of it, too. Arsenoi was the one who ended up living, and she ended up, like, kind of figuring out the low magic. So it sort of was like, was it a bad thing? Or was it not a bad Like, I don't know. I sort of felt like it was challenging the concept of low magic, but there also was a cost. There was just some stuff that wasn't quite 100% there for me. It was, like, 85% there. Yeah. The one thing, too was as much as I did like some of the battle scenes, I kind of thought that... Do you remember Arsenoi's plan where she was like, hey, if we have to defeat dead queens, like, let's match dead queens against dead queens. And she was going to, like, resurrect Daphne uh -huh. to use in the fight. And her, her um, reasoning was that Daphne, she was stronger than the other dead queens because she didn't lose. Yeah, she was a winner. Yeah, she wasn't yeah. killed. She won. And I love that idea. I was like, yeah, go resurrect Daphne. Like, send her after the dead queens. Like, that would have made more sense to me. And again, all of a sudden, Daphne just vanishes. So she was, like, haunting <laughs> yeah. her to bring her to the island to tell her to kill Mirabella. And now Mirabella is dead. The mist is still there. The dead queens are still there. And Daphne's missing. I was like, what? It, and it doesn't work. Like, she tries to resurrect her and it's just like, mer, mer. Yeah. That was a, kind of a bummer. But now I'm listening to all the things I didn't like. But I actually, again, I was pretty happy with it 
for the second half, I felt like a lot of stuff was happening. Some of my predictions came true. I did feel like I was a little bit worried having four really major characters and several pretty significant side characters that we wouldn't get a good conclusion for everyone but I felt like the timing of that kind of worked out nicely like yeah Mirabella kind of died suddenly but um even seeing how Luca reacted to that I was satisfied with oh yeah when she's she frees Billy against Catherine's wishes and she's like tell Arsenault to come fight the mist like Catherine's gone crazy yeah we won't stand in your way and no one can help her and and yeah. I think um, even at the end when Luca kind of gave up her appeal for power, because remember in whatever book that was where she turned on Mirabella the first time, it was sort mm-hmm. of a power grab. So I was also kind of pleased to see that character development a little bit, I would say, for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter turned on Catherine, but still like loved her and tried to help her. But like, I loved that, actually. That was like one of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, even Billy and Arsenoy, they both like had something to prove in the fight, and I think they both did sort of. But then Billy like had to go home and take care of his family. I thought some of that was handled weird. Like I was like, why don't you guys agree to see each other again? For being so in love with each other, it sort of felt like they didn't try very hard in the middle. But then at the very very end, we see her going back to try and ask him to be an ambassador. So hopefully that Which has I a liked. happy ending. Uh, I was trying to think what other side characters. Ro had kind of a sad death, but she kind of served her purpose, I think. Um, Amelia, I don't know. I just, I felt like a lot of, like, it could have been, someone could have been lost in the mix or, like, not, like, the fact that she was tied with the curse and was, like, handling the battle on a lot of fronts and, like, went to help Billy because she had made that promise. And, like, some of those little things. I just felt like for how many different things were happening, it wasn't like someone was like, oh, yeah, what happened to them during that whole scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I really liked, um... Peter and Catherine's arc a lot actually because like if I had to pick a side character I would say Peter is definitely my favorite because I love how when he leaves Catherine and he go and he's with Arsenault and he sees Catherine again he's like become a little bit terrified of, of her because he is not sure whether or not she tried to kill him mm-hmm. and I love that whole scene where like he's basically saying I want a place in the rebellion because I'm not going back to Catherine. Yep. And I, but I think that was a little bit weird because like, I can't imagine believing that Catherine was trying to kill him when she sent the queens into him. Like, I think what he really believed was that she couldn't control the queens at all. So even though he kept kind of defending that she was in there, it like wasn't enough of her or it wasn't strong enough of her. Like, I think before she tried to kill him or the queens tried to kill him or whatever he sort of thought she just had to like mind over matter it and like could get out and like you know kept seeing the best of her and all this stuff and I feel like that was the moment where he sort of like turned and was like no this she's like too far gone kind of but then he sees her in the battle and she smiles at him and Mm -hmm. he realizes that she's happy to see him and that she's it's that moment where she doesn't have the queens in her anymore because she sent them into row and he like recognizes his old Catherine and I love that I love that moment of like misunderstanding when he he tries to go to Arsenault because he knows that Arsenault is his best chance of getting to Catherine but Billy mm-hmm. just sees him running for Arsenault and like tries to fight him and Peter's like oh my god calm down he like has to stab Billy to like get him out of his way yeah um but I wish that Peter and Catherine had had like a moment, a too. final moment together mm-hmm. too, because I thought it was so weird when like Arsenal went to face Catherine, like she just kisses Peter for some reason. And yeah, I was like what? Like doesn't make any sense. 
I definitely thought that Catherine was going to die in Peter's arms and, like, yeah. the queens would be gone and she'd be, like, herself at the last moment. Oh, and that would have been he'd great. be like, you did good, and then, like, she died or something. But Yeah, I really wanted them to have, like, a some kind of reconciliation. Instead, she kicks her sister as she falls off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But the other thing I liked about it, and uh, it was kind of cool poetry, but I still, this is still a question I have about Peter as a character, is it was kind of a reverse because earlier in the series, Catherine wasn't sure if he was trying to kill her or not when he pushed her into the Bracca domain. True. And I still have so many questions about why he did that and why he thought that was the best move. But <laughs> that's okay. Agreed. It was maybe a little misguided, but we'll forgive you, Peter. I mean, it's kind of like the same thing about like, is it better to die at someone else's hands, someone who you trust, than to die, you know, he didn't want Catherine to be torn apart by villagers, so he pushed her into the Breca domain, and um, Mira didn't want to die by being possessed by queens, so she has to be thrown off a cliff, you know, it's like... Yeah, but it would be different if Catherine had said, I don't want to be torn apart, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. yeah. But uh, the, the Peter part inspired my research, too, by the way, when oh. we get to that. So I'm glad that that's what you, what you liked his storyline a little we bit. We can go there now. Okay. So, well, I guess I already introduced it, basically. I have an article called The Five Ballsiest Ways Anyone Has Ever Switched Sides Mid-War. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and I, like, did a little bit of additional research on some of these people. So have you heard of Hussein Farah Adid? No. He is the... Have you seen... Um, what's that movie? Black Hawk Down? That sounds familiar, though. Oh, yeah. I've seen Black Hawk Down. So I haven't seen that. But his dad is, like, I think the bad guy in Black Hawk Down or something, essentially. Okay. So his dad is Muhammad Farah Adid. And um, his dad was a Somalian who, like, basically took over the country and we had issues with in, over here in the U.S. But... um. Mm-hmm. He had five wives, and his first wife's oldest son is Hussein, and he, in 1979, moved to America at the age of 17, and he finished high school, became an American citizen, all this stuff, and he ultimately joined the U.S. Marine Corps, and hmm. he served with honor in the Gulf War, and then in 1993, he was part of Operation Restore Hope, because he was literally the only American Marine who spoke Somali, I guess. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so he ultimately kind of ended up being the liaison between, like, the U.S. military and his dad's crazy politics. So, yeah, his dad did stuff like he ambushed a bunch of U.N. peacekeepers and and whatnot, but ultimately his dad declared himself president, (laughs) and then he was killed. And so his son was, like, declared his successor. So he, as a Marine, he took, like, a leave of absence to visit another country, I think is what it said. And he went to visit his family, and basically he stuck around and, like, became his dad's little mini-me over in Somalia for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of his story. But, uh, I, like, I also just think it's so funny that we didn't have any, but we didn't have anyone who spoke the language, so we had, like, this dictator's son be our liaison to the country. Yeah, that's probably could end badly, right? (laughs) Yeah. I'd be a little nervous to do that. I mean, you would think... But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, he was on our side throughout Operation Restore Hope, and then at some point went back to Somalia and was temporarily part of a government that we were not super supportive of, so that was kind of interesting. Interesting. Um, 
This guy is pretty cool, actually. Okay, so his name is Laurie Torney, and he's a he's from Finland originally, and he hates communists. So <laughs> back in the day, he was a Finnish soldier fighting the Soviets, basically, and he won like every medal the Finnish military had, and supposedly some extra medals that they like made up for him because he was like so good at <laughs> killing these commies and he um he was part of the elite ski infantry didn't we study them at one point oh yeah 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 so he was part of that group so then uh ultimately finland lost the war and in 1944 the Finns surrendered to the ussr and basically they were supposed to be fighting the nazis but torney just really doesn't like communists so he defected to nazi germany and joined hitler oh my god and like led a won a ton of medals leading a bunch of German Nazis killing off Soviets too. So this is like his strong suit is just killing the Soviets. Wow. He was a guy with a goal. So then after World War II ended and his team like also lost again, uh, but he still, you know, just really doesn't like communists. So he broke out of a British POW camp, headed back to Finland where he was arrested for treason. (laughs) So then he broke out of prison again and went to Sweden and eventually ended up in the United States. And he was, I guess he was granted permanent residence through some special order of Congress because they understood he was not, like, a bad Jew-hating Nazi, but a good communist-hating Nazi. What? So, I don't know exactly how all that works out, but ultimately he enlisted in the U.S. Army. How do you trust someone who does all this? also eventually won a bunch of awards and was part of, like, the U.S. Special Forces. He was, like, a Green Beret or something. Um, And... When America went to Vietnam, again, to kill communists, oh God, he must have had a field day. was, like, all about that. So, uh, he ultimately died in, like, a helicopter crash or something, but he won multiple awards from three, like, armies that were against each other. <laughs> I just, <laughs> like, three enemy armies throughout the course of his career. I don't understand how you, like, hire someone or trust someone who has been working for the enemy like that. Well, again, I guess to some extent, it, if they're able to prove the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So yeah. if you're able to say, like, I don't really care about what Finland was doing or what Nazi Germany was doing. I just really cared about defeating the communists. Mm-hmm. Then you're like, great, we need more people to help us defeat these other communists. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it's crazy. But this, I mean, I have never seen so many awards listed for somebody. If he, So his goal is to rack up awards. you Working for multiple sides is one way to do it, I guess. I mean, and he's just, he was really good at killing communists for <laughs> picking the losing side, but killing communists all the same. I wonder where that started, like that deep-rooted hatred. I know, right? That's a great question. Or if it, or maybe he really believed in it initially, but then like just couldn't admit defeat and blame the communists for it or something. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he, yeah, he's got decoration from Finland, from Germany, and United States, so... Wow. Um, okay, so then I read about Clyde McKay and Alvin Glukowski. Mm-hmm. They are, I don't even know, the how do you phrase this? They performed an act of mutiny mm. on an American vessel, which okay. you may have thought was something that happened a really long time ago and not in the modern day and age, but uh, it's the first, it was the first mutiny on an American ship in 150 years. This was March 1970. And they took over the Columbia Eagle with, they threatened that they had a bomb and they had like two handguns Mm -hmm. and 
this merchant vessel was full of Nepalm bombs that they were supposed to send to the U.S. Air Force for the Vietnam War. It was supposed to go to Thailand, but these people were, like, opposed to the war, and this is how they decided to prove it. Okay. So their goal was to bring the ship to Cambodia, I guess. I don't know exactly how much they planned this, but um, they forced 24 of the crew members into two different lifeboats just drifting through the Gulf of Thailand. I don't actually know what happened to them. And then the rest of the crew, they forced to take the ship to Cambodia, and they requested asylum from the Cambodian government, which they were originally granted, but then later they were arrested and jailed. And one of them ultimately came back to the U.S., I think, to be charged, and the other one, no one knows what happened to him. But, uh... Oh, no. Yeah, so they just, uh... When... So when ships tried to, like, go and get the boat, too, they threatened to blow up the whole boat. So, and I guess that worked because they let the boat go, I guess. And they want, they, yeah, this was their plan to just take these bombs away from... Redirect the boat. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. Okay. And then this is my last story for now. But this is about James Joseph, or Joe, Dresnak, who... Oh, that sounds familiar. We might have talked about this, or maybe not. He was a U.S. Army private who defected to North Korea and ultimately became a movie star? Nope. Okay. (laughs) So this was 1962. He had been... Okay, yeah, so he spent two years in West Germany and came back home to his wife, and she had left him. So he re-enlisted in the Army and went to South Korea and was, like, hanging out near the Korean demilitarized zone. And he had been forging signatures on paperwork, giving him permission to leave the base, and was facing a court-martial. So he just went AWOL and crossed the minefield in daylight up to North Korea. And the North Korean soldiers obviously apprehended him, and he was interrogated and captured and brought to the capital and all of this stuff. But I guess at some point throughout this experience, they decided he could live there, and it was fine. And he met a few other U.S. defectors, after he arrived and aren't they usually like arrested as spies when that happens yeah but i guess so i mean he was definitely like caught and interrogated so i don't know exactly what all happened during the interrogation and stuff but they basically ultimately let him stay and live there and he participated in a ton of propaganda efforts on behalf of the north korean government where he was like the evil american Mm. the evil white guy and so he became, like, a famous movie star in all these North Korean films, which are basically all propaganda anyways, and he's the celebrity villain. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's the bad guy in, like, all of these movies, but everyone in North Korea at the time, like, knew, like he was a big movie star. <laughs> That's fascinating. And he ended up, he got married over there to a, I think she was Romanian, but some other non-North Korean woman, and they had two kids who also went into the movies at some point. And I get, it's just, like, funny to me, some of these people, like, I'm always curious, like, how much they, most of these stories kind of feel like they, on a whim, like, an opportunity presented itself, and they were like, oh, I guess instead I'll, like, go to the enemy. <laughs> Go be a movie star. And then it actually, like, kind of worked out for almost all of them. Yeah, thank God. Anyways, those were my stories. But I thought they were were all, like, sort of interesting to me. And it, it, again, to what we were saying earlier was um, Peter's story about how he switched sides even though he still did care about Catherine, I thought was hard to believe but also really interesting. Or hard to believe at first, you know, everyone was a little bit suspicious of him. But he, Mm -hmm. I think, proved that he was serious, so... 
Yeah. That was my research. And I think I liked at the end, too, that he, like, realized that she did care for him. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, um, my research is about war, too. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big war yeah, scene really was. thing, so. Um, so I thought it was interesting that um, there was, like, a, a section of the book where, like, they were riding into battle, and I just thought it was kind of funny that Camden the cougar was like riding on the back of a horse like into battle i thought that was funny multiple times yeah um and then they talked about how arsenault left her bear braddock behind and like didn't bring him into battle and i was like good decision um so then i was interested (laughs) in times where animals played a part in military engagements you mean besides the cats in egypt yes i'm not gonna do that again um So I guess animals have played a role in wars for a really, really long time, like back in ancient times, you know, obviously horses, but also um, like elephants were ridden into battle, Um, you know, large animals that would create, that would like intimidate the enemy were often used, and mostly elephants. But there were a lot of other animals that were used too, some of which I think are very surprising. I'm so excited. So... Speaking of elephants, (laughs) apparently a tactic, a military tactic back in like ancient history, like BC times, it was really common to use elephants, as I said, to intimidate the enemy, but they also used large animals just to create chaos on the battlefield to like confuse the enemy, which doesn't make sense to me because I feel Hmm. like just everyone would be confused and affected by that, like... You can't train an animal to, like... Yeah, like, like you can't control that. Yeah. So, like, I guess in the first century BC, rhinos were used to create chaos. So they would just release packs of rhinos into the enemy to, like, attempt to have them attack. I can't imagine that going well. No, it very rarely did. They also unleashed war pigs. What is a war pig? So a war pig... So that could be, like, a wild boar. Okay. Um, Like a javelina? Yes, exactly. Um, And what's interesting is they realized early on, I guess, that the squeal of pigs was really frightening to elephants. Huh. And so this is recorded by Pliny the Elder. He reported that elephants are scared by the smallest squeal of a hog. And so (laughs) he would (laughs) release pigs onto the elephants and they would obviously be terrified so they'd be squealing their heads off and the elephants would just go berserk it reminds me of like the cartoons where elephants are afraid of mice except like funnier somehow because it's pigs (laughs) i just think it's so interesting so i guess the the problem was that the elephants would like bolt in terror and so they'd often kill great numbers of their own soldiers by trampling them to death so they later tried to um keep pigs among elephants to try and accustom elephants to the squeals of pigs. That sounds Um, like torture for them. I know, but and actually this was immortalized. Um, There's a Roman coin that dates back to this time that has an elephant on one side and a pig on the other. (laughs) Um, Okay, dolphins. Were used in war? What? So, military dolphins, yeah. Wait, if I had known some of this stuff, I might have considered joining the armed forces. I don't know. I wouldn't. I mean, they don't do anything terrible to the dolphins, but you'll find out later that sometimes they don't use the animals in a very kind ways. Um, so in 1960, the United States Navy started a program to work with dolphins and sea lions, and the goal was to help them detect mines. 
and to rescue lost naval swimmers um, and to detect, like, submarines and underwater weapons. So the Navy did a lot of tests with different marine animals to determine which would be the best, and they tested over 19 species, including some sharks. (laughs) Oh my goodness. How did they test these animals? Great question. They probably tested them for, like, recall, intelligence, understanding commands... Mm -hmm you know, willingness to work. <laughs> um, so eventually the bottlenose dolphin and the California sea lion were shown to be the best at what the Navy needed them for. So the dolphins had uh, sonar, biosonar, so they could use that to help find underwater mines. And the sea lions had really great underwater vision, which they used to help detect enemy swimmers. Interesting. So, yeah, so they, in 2007, they estimated that the U.S. Navy spent $14 million on Whoa. research on marine animals as weapons. In what year? 2007. They wow. have 75 trained dolphins, and these dolphins that were located mines are rescued swimmers. They were used during the Vietnam War, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and during the First and Second Gulf Wars. Um, they also, there was a rumor that they would try and use the dolphins to lay underwater mines, but that is not confirmed. <laughs> oh man, that's interesting. Since we just read stories about like people who switch sides, like I'm just imagining like dolphins switching <laughs> dolphins sides. Dolphins becoming spies. <laughs> yeah. I laid this mine here. Let me tell the other guy where it is. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's what's so hard about animals is, like, you can train them as well as you want, but they're always going to be unpredictable. So, like, this is a little bit that happens in the next thing I researched. So, in World War II, Russia created a program to use exploding anti-tank dogs. They were usually Alsatians. Exploding anti-tank dogs? Yeah, so these dogs were trained to carry explosives on their bodies and they were trained to locate enemy tanks, and then the bombs would detonate. No! I know. How awful is that? It's like a suicide bomber that didn't get a chance to decide. Exactly. It's so awful. Luckily, this practice was very short-lived, so... But a cat person came up with that idea. I know, really. So at first, they tried to train the dog to carry a bomb to the tank and then run away, and then afterwards, mm-hmm. their handler could detonate the bomb. But the problem was to drop the bomb, the dog had to pull on a belt with its teeth to release it. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, too hard for the dogs to learn how to release these bombs. And oftentimes, good dog, the dog would just simply run back to its handler and the bomb would detonate. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I feel like that just means we need more engineering stuff going on. There has to be some smart way to, like, release I know. It's it's such a dumb idea. In fact, this was this plan was criticized so heavily because it just didn't work that the Russians were criticized for just like endangering the lives of dogs needlessly. Mm-hmm. Um so what they did was they to train them, they would starve the dogs and then they would put food under a practice tank. And so the dogs were trained to believe that they could find food under the tanks. Mm. And so if it saw one, it would run to the tank and then they could detonate the bomb. But the problem was that a lot of the dogs just refused to dive under the tanks because if you think about it, like 
during training, it's one thing to be like, yeah, run to that tank and find food under it. But like in a battle, like there's gunshots happening, the tanks are moving, like situationally, there's only so much a dog will do for food before it's like, mm, no thanks. I'm not worth not it. not going to risk that. Right. Plus, I mean, you would think if you've been starving and you can smell the food, because dogs have such a good sense of smell. Totally. But, versus if you aren't starving, because you can't imagine they're still starving the dogs that they need to like perform these. I don't know. Maybe they are. But even that, it's like, I don't smell the food. I'm not going right. to... Why would I run over to that tank when there's a tank right here or something? I don't know. And the bigger problem was that the dogs had been trained with Soviet tanks, not German ones. And the Soviet and German tanks used different types of, fu- of fuel. So the dogs would often go back to the Soviet tanks, the ones that trained them, and would blow up the, their own tanks. I was going to ask, well, that's what I was even just saying a minute ago. Like, there's a tank right here, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. So that plan oh, backfired, and they quickly uh, canceled that idea, which was terrible to begin with. I think the dogs were actually too smart, and they were like, this is a bad idea. We need to end this program ASAP. And they sabotaged it. Totally. Um, so they also used bats to carry bombs, which I think is fascinating also i mean terrible because again it wasn't like the bat the bats were dropping these bombs how big are these bats so they were mexican free-tailed bats how big is that i'm gonna google it um i thought it was interesting because this idea was conceived of by a dental surgeon from Irwin, pennsylvania which is not too far from where i grew up um (laughs) they were developed and during world war ii um and this guy this dentist just sent his idea to Eleanor Roosevelt, essentially, and was like, hey, I have this really great idea. And this is terrible, but he said he considered bats the lowest form of animal life. And he was like, "It's re- the reason for its creation is unexplained. And then he said, um, bats were created by God to await this hour to play their part in the scheme of, of free human existence and to frustrate any attempt of those who dare desecrate our way of life. Oh my goodness. And then Roosevelt just said, this guy is a nut, but it, and it's a perfectly wild idea, but it might be worth looking into. <laughs> Did you ever read, like, the Silverwing series? No. Oh my goodness, I love them. They were, like, I don't know, probably, like, for middle schoolers mm. or, like, fifth graders or something. But it was this novel series about a bat and I mm. like was obsessed but if he had read that he wouldn't think they were the lowest life no form. he was obviously a quack <laughs> and we listened to him but it was estimated that two million dollars so the equivalent to 18.7 million dollars was spent on operation bat bomb oh my goodness eventually they gave up testing because they thought the project was moving too slowly and um they decided to shift their focus by fo- by um, concentrating on the atomic bomb project. When I hear stories like this sometimes, I'm like, why don't... One of my crazy ideas is probably actually worth a lot of money if I just get it to the right person. Yeah. Even if it's actually a stupid idea, I could probably convince someone to invest in it. I think that's entirely possible. There's a lot <laughs> of crackpot ideas out there. Um, so other interesting animals that were used during military clashes were homing pigeons, So they were used by Americans and British forces during World War II to carry messages, maps, photos, and cameras. This is so interesting. So historians claim that over 90% of all pigeon-carried messages were received. Wow. I know. That's awesome. That's a huge success rate. 
<laughs> Poor pigeons. They get, like, low end of the totem pole, but they did so much good. <laughs> they did a good job. They really did. Um, and then I thought this was cute. So um, glowworms were used in World War II to provide light in the trenches. I think I have heard that before, actually. Mm-hmm. So soldiers, they would, like, gather them up and put them in jars to create lanterns. Cool. So, yeah. Those were some happier ones at the end, instead of blowing up dogs. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> this one is kind of interesting. This is the last one we'll talk about. So there was this, this is what started the whole research. I'm an idiot. <laughs> um, so there was a 250-pound bear named Wojtek. Wojtek? He was trained to carry mortar shells and boxes of ammunition during World War II, and he um, was officially enlisted in the Polish Army in 1944, and he traveled with the Polish 2nd Company. And one time he discovered a spy hiding in the unit's tent. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So that's what, like, started it. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. There was this bear that was, like, actually enlisted. (laughs) I also, I'm still, like, fascinated by this guy who just, like, emailed the president to think about bat bombs. <laughs> I know, and he was like, this guy, it might be out of his mind, but let's try He's it. He's definitely crazy, but... You <laughs> have no better idea. Cool. So, did you come up with a fan name this week? Oh, no, I forgot. Ah. Um, the... I came up with a dumb one. Mainlanders. <laughs> what? Um, so I was thinking how, like, they call... Some of them, the war gifted. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking maybe we could do something like that. But we're like giftless, well, aren't we? Yeah, I guess so. No, but what do you, what was your? I wrote it time? down. I'm looking for it. <laughs> the book gifted. The word gifted. Oh shit, these are terrible. Um. No, but I like this idea a little bit more because okay, I'd buy into that. We are. What are we gifted? <laughs> <laughs> Not war or making things grow, Reading. but. The research gifted. (laughs) (laughs) Our research was not super great for the series. Um, Okay, what else could we be? Fates, goddesses, blue queens, book queens? Did the rebels Um, have a name? No, they were just the rebels, right? Um, Three dark... Oh, man. Why, Why can't I think of anything right now? I know. We're usually so much better than this. Okay, wait. Um, so we have we have three dark crowns, one dark throne, two dark reigns. We're the two dark podcasters. <laughs> Poisoners, elementals, naturalists. Wait, what do they call like Luca and crew? Oh, priestesses. Oh, never mind. I thought it was a cooler name. Can we be familiars? Sure. <laughs> just Seems anticlimactic, but let's go for it. <laughs> okay. We did it, kind of. Listeners, if you have anything better, aka any <laughs> idea at all, uh, you should send them to us and we can share them next week or something. Man, this is hard. I yeah. can't believe I, for- I I usually forget, but I usually can like pull something out of my brain, but no. Right, we're time. usually pretty good at thinking on the spot. Because <laughs> we always forget to come up with a fan name. What else do we do? Oh, favorite scene. Oh, favorite scene. Oh, when Jules fought Ro. I really liked that. That was cool. She had, like, broken leg. Oh, Jules lost her leg! I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. And she was, like, fighting on broken legs and was like, oh, that was... I mean, it was a good moment for Jules, really. The other cool scene would be where we actually defeat the queens and the mist is there and we're on top of this building and it's mm-hmm. like, I just imagined the view. Oh, and Arsenault gets pushed off the edge. Yeah, and Catherine. And like hanging. Catherine's mm-hmm. falling and like kicks her sister back to the wall. And... Yeah. I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I said, the like the action scenes were fantastic um, and well written and easy to follow. Just had some questions about the mist. And again, so many different points of view and like I felt like lots of characters were. I understood their motivation and their differences, and you know, like I didn't feel like anyone was too Agreed. flat really. But I had questions about the magic and some big world stuff, I guess. But not a lot of que- like I really liked the characters. I did too. They were well thought out. I'll remember them. Like they were memorable. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed reading about all of them and was interested in what would happen in their arcs. So yeah, I thought well done for character development for sure. And this is her, no, this is not her first series because you read the other one. Yeah, I read Anna Dressed in Blood. I loved the first book so much. I was like obsessed with it. The second book wasn't as great for me, um, but I still really enjoyed the whole concept. And um, I would say if you like ghost stories, definitely go check it out because the first one especially is really well done. I would definitely read more by Kinder Blake, but maybe not another four book series right away. <laughs> Fair enough. Just in general, I think we feel this way, or I feel this way a lot about even part of what we say is we love the duologies because they're quick, mm-hmm. you know? I think a lot of times with longer series, I feel like the middle gets slow. I agree. Cool. Should we talk about our next book? Oh, no, we have to, what else? Oh, we have to think of a rating for this book. We didn't do that yet. Oh, yeah. Oh my goodness, we almost forgot. Okay, um, out of fates, since there's yeah, five uh, of them. <laughs> yes, out of five fates. How many <laughs> fates are you giving this series? I still don't even know if I understand the five fates, except I guess there were five powers. Um, okay, I think I would give it three and a half. Oh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was oh, almost going to say four, but three and a half, I think. There were, like, parts I would give a five. And there are parts that I would give a three. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. You have to tell me a joke. Oh, yeah. Um, So I was reading a non-YA book, and this was a joke in it. Oh, nice. How does a monkey make toast? Mm, I don't know. He puts it under the gorilla. I don't get it. (laughs) I didn't either. I had to Google it. I guess it was, like, a play on grill. I don't know. Oh, really make gorilla. Sense. Yeah, maybe I have to say it differently. The gorilla. But you don't put bread. You put bread in a toaster. I know. <laughs> it didn't really make sense. The other one's a little bit funnier. Okay. Why did the lobster blush? Because his shell came off. I don't know. Because the seaweed. What? I imagine that means it's told to a little kid. <laughs> so I don't like... get it. Because it's... Oh, because the seaweed. Like pee? I think so. <laughs> I don't, that's such an English term for pee. I, I like, don't pick up on that. That's fair. Anyways, they weren't the best jokes, but I read them in my other book and I took a picture of it and I was like, I'll bring these to <laughs> or to a podcast. Was it written by an English author? That is a good question. That it was. Was this one based in England? I've read so many books recently and like half of them were, so it very well could have been, but I can't remember off the top of my head right now. If Only I Could Tell You was the name of the book. So if you read that, I just spoiled two whole lines and jokes in it. Um, okay, do we want to talk about our next series? Yeah, I'm actually really excited for it. I just got them in the mail. I'm super excited. I've wanted to read this series for so long. But the third one just came out, right? Yes. So we are reading The Nevernight Chronicles by Jay Kristoff. He also co-wrote The Illuminae Files um, with Amy Kaufman, if you remember back uh, from season two. I think we read that then. I'm so excited to see how, because it was interesting when we read that one to have the two, right? Like, I'm curious if I'll be like, oh, now I know, 
like if it gives me any insight into what he wrote versus what she wrote in the Illuminati files, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. So um, there's three books in the series. The first one is called Nevernight. The second one is called God's Grave. And the third one is called Dark Dawn. And it just came out um, September 3rd. So now that they're all out, we can read them. But I didn't see any Chicago or Arizona book tour stops, no. which is disappointing. Although I did see just see Rainbow Roll and I'm going to see Lee Bardugo and I'm super oh, excited. I'm so jealous. Yeah. That's awesome. I know. She's coming here in October. Okay, should we read a little bit about Nevernight? Yes, please. In a land where three suns almost never set, a fledgling killer joins a school of assassins seeking vengeance against the powers who destroyed her family. Daughter of an executed traitor, Mia Corvera, is barely able to escape her father's failed rebellion with her life. Alone and friendless, she hides in a city built from the bones of a dead god hunted by the Senate and her father's former comrades. But her gift for speaking with the shadows leads her to the door of a retired killer and a future she never imagined. Now Mia is apprenticed to the deadliest flock of assassins in the entire Republic, the Red Church. If she bests her fellow students in contests of steel, poison, and the subtle arts, she'll be inducted among the blades of the Lady of Blessed Murder, and one step closer to the vengeance she desires. But a killer's loose within the church halls, the bloody secrets of Mia's past return to hunt, haunt her, and a plot to bring down the entire congregation is unfolding in the shadows she so loves. Will she even survive to initiation, let alone have her revenge? Oh my goodness. Gosh, this is reminding me so much of Mask of Shadows. I was going to say, we have another assassin trial. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's exciting. Did you find a spot to read up to? Nope. (laughs) Okay, let's read up to chapter 19, Masquerade. Yeah, I'm so excited. I am too. And the book just, I don't know, something about this book... I, like, can't wait to read it, just holding it in my hand. You know how some books just, like, the cover, I don't know, just, like, it feels good to you? The cover looks amazing. Well, and it's, like, bendy. I hate when, like, paperbacks are too firm or something. I don't know. I feel like this one's just easy to curl up with. That's a weird thing to say. I'm (laughs) going to stop rambling. Yeah, I just got a good feeling. Got a good feeling. All right. Well, we will see you in two weeks when we start the Nevernight Chronicles. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.